morning, everybody. Hey, before I speak today, I'm going to ask if uh, Tim and Stacy Hess come join me up uh, on the platform. So this is a nice change from the last like five to six weeks if you've been here. It's like every week we've prayed for a family or someone who is going. This week we actually get to receive somebody who's staying. So this is good. Um, if you're on the email uh, loop that we sent out every week, you received an email that uh, talked about Carla Lowe's transition. We prayed for her last week and us welcoming Stacy Hess as our next-gen pastor. So this is officially her first Sunday without Carla partnering with her. So, uh, so this is exciting. You have a few fans. That's good. She'll be signing autographs in the foyer afterwards. But, but I wanted you to know about this transition because it's, ex- it's extremely important about what Stacy is stepping into. Most of you all know Tim and Stacy. Tim leading worship and Tim and Stacy together have overseen Switch, our, our uh, youth ministry, and do an amazing job. But this transition and what's happened is really about the next generation. It's about being serious about discipling the next generation. So when Carla came to me probably two or three months ago and we sat down and she said, you know, I feel like this is the season that God's bringing transition for me, uh, that, that began a broader dialogue because the first idea was how do we replace Carla? But taking a step back and anytime there's transition, it's a great opportunity to take a step back and say, God, what are you saying? We realize that if we're going to be serious about being, as being a church that is serious about discipling people, helping them to follow Jesus, being reunited with God, which I'll talk a bit about this morning, that we need to make sure that from birth to young adult, we take seriously that we truly go after discipling kids and young people. Because, you know, there's all kinds of studies, but the general kind of rule of thumb is that, that 80% of the decisions made for Christ are made before the age of 18. So it's a critical time in the life of a person as they develop. And so we want to make sure that we take that seriously. So that's why we said, as we looked back, we said we can't just replace Carla, but we need to look at the ministry overall. And so part of that was getting the resource together and reconfiguring next-gen and children's ministry so that we could bring on somebody in full-time capacity, which means part of that is that we did have to transition Renee Reynolds. Many of you know Renee. She was in a support staff role with Carla. So with those two positions, we're able to form the one position so that we have a next-gen pastor to oversee the whole process of discipleship. So we went through that transition because we felt like that's the way God was leading the church. So that means for us, this is what's exciting, is that next-gen ministries doesn't fall on these shoulders right here. It, its responsibility comes to all of us. If we're going to be a church that's serious about discipleship, serious about helping kids follow Jesus and young people, and having them really live a life following Jesus with passion, then it doesn't come down to one person. Stacy's role is to mobilize people, is to lead leaders, is to build teams. And that means if we're going to be a church that really seriously disciples the next generation, that means all of us have to play a role in that. That means that each one of us has to ask the question, how am I discipling the person that comes after me? How am I discipling the next generation? How am I discipling young people? It's not just a handful of people. It's not just those people who serve on that side of the building. It's all of us together. And so when Stacy asks you or calls you and asks you to engage, there's only one answer you give. That is yes. That's all you're allowed to say to her, okay? So, but we realize that this is something that God is, is calling our church to do. So I'm going to ask the, the council and uh, elders, if they, those who are here, come join me and we'll pray for them. There might be just a few here. Uh, the council and elders at this church get a workout getting up and down off the platform every week. So those who are here in the first service as well. But we're going to pray for Stacy and as well for Tim as she steps into this new role, knowing that obviously this is bigger than she is. John, you can come up here. It's all right. So that's right. They all came first service. But we want to pray for her because we know this role is not about what Stacy can do. It's about what God can do through her. So would you extend your hand this way as we pray for Stacy this morning? 
Lord Jesus, I thank you for Stacy and that gift that you have given to us. Lord, I thank you for Tim as well, and Lord, the, the ministry and the leadership they provided for our church family. And as Stacy steps into this role, I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would empower her with your Holy Spirit, which means, Lord, we know that what you've called her to do and what you've called us to do as a church is far beyond us because it's about you. So I pray, Lord, that you would now take all of the gifts, all of the experience, all of the education, all that she's had in investing in kids and young people, and that you would bring all of that together in this season of life for her as she leads, as she builds teams, as she equips people, that, Lord, that you would give her insight and vision and favor and all those things. Because, Lord, we know it's not about Stacy, but it's about the next generation. It's about kids right now that need to know you, Jesus. It's about young adults that need to find a way to follow you with their life. It's about students who need to understand, God, that you are real. It's about an entire next generation of, of people who need to be reconciled back to you, God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use Stacy, that you would use New Hope to accomplish your purpose, and that in our city, as we play our role, New Hope, as a part of your body, that, Lord Jesus, we would seriously embrace embracing the next generation for you, leading them and following you so that ultimately when we stand someday in eternity with you, we can look at the lives of young people and kids who were touched because we made a commitment today to be about the next generation and helping disciple them into a relationship with you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. God bless you, Stacey. So if you have your Bible, you can take it and keep it handy. We're going to do something a little different today. I'm not going to go to one specific passage, um, but what you're about to experience in the next mo- few moments is an absolute fire hose of Scripture. So uh, I'm, I'm warning you right now, we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, because of the nature of what we're going to do today. So you may want to just, the, all the Scriptures are going to show up on the screens. You can maybe jot down the reference if you're like a copious note taker and you want to make sure that you get everything but this morning we are actually starting into the first of a series called Disciple. And this, this first section of this series is called Living the Life. And uh, what this is, is if you were here a few months ago, we talked about the, the transformation and the change and the direction that God's leading us in as a church to take seriously that God has called us, not just New Hope, but God has called the church for thousands of years to make disciples to be people who follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus, who also help others follow Jesus. That's, what, that's why we exist. That's why we're here. And so we want to begin to talk about what that looks like. And this morning, before we, we get into the weeks ahead, the, the in-depth of what this series is going to be about, we want to talk about really what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus in, in really a basic understanding? But before we get there, I want to kind of give you the bigger picture of why we're having this conversation and why we're taking this direction. It's because back in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said some of the most important words that you and I will ever hear in our life. If you and I have made a decision somewhere in our life to follow Jesus, then the words that he speaks in this passage are probably the most important words that you and I need to hear. It's what he spoke to his disciples 2,000 years ago, and he continues to speak through his Holy Spirit even today about what our role is and what he's called us to do. So let me read from that passage, understanding that Jesus had died, he had risen from the dead, he had appeared to his disciples multiple times, and now he's ready to go back to the Father. And so these are kind of like his last words. And anytime somebody says something that's kind of their last words, 
You and I should absolutely listen and grasp what they're saying. So Jesus says this, says in, in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, he says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a big statement. In other words, if there is any authority, I have it. Is there any voice that you should listen to? It should be mine. I'm the one that has all authority to speak this. And then he says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we call this the Great Commission. Jesus telling us that his death and his resurrection is not just about you. It's about the world. It's about the next generation. It's about another culture. It's about another person. It's about people being reached for Jesus all over our city and all over the world. And it's something that he gives to you and I, every individual believer, that this commission is not just for the missionaries. It's not just for the cool people or the gifted ones. It's for all of us. And if that's what Jesus has said to you and I, then we need to understand what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to really follow Jesus? There's a lot of loaded terms when, it, when you talk about discipleship. So for us to be able to answer that as a church, we are going to take the next 18 months to walk through a journey together. And you're thinking, man, 18 months, are you kidding me? Trust me, over the next 18 month, we, uh, months, we are going to cover topics and things from Scripture that cover a huge range of things of what it means to follow Jesus. So it will be challenging for all of us. And the reason it's going to take 18 months is because what we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let me explain. I'm going to read this in a moment. So Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples. And so as they, this thing called the church starts in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up and the church starts, they start with a basic foundation, a basic framework by which they disciple people. And it's described for you and I in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. So what did the disciples teach the people that were to be discipled? When Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. So what was the apostles' teaching? Was it some great teaching that they came up with just off the top of their head and said, hey, this would be a good topic to talk about? No, they were teaching people how to follow Jesus by telling them what Jesus said. The apostles' teaching was the teachings of Jesus. That's what they had. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the, the law, which they had come out of their Jewish culture. But Jesus said to them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded, which was Jesus was saying is, tell them what I said. Tell them this is how to live. Tell them this is what they should be doing. And so when you and I look at scripture, there's sections in scripture. In fact, the book of Matthew has five high points of teaching that pretty much summarize the majority of Jesus' teaching throughout all the gospels that say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what I love about it. This is not following Jesus in the words of Pastor John. This is following Jesus in the words of Jesus. That's what we're going to be doing for the next 18 months, is looking what Jesus said, this is what it looks like when you follow me. This is what it means to be one of my disciples. That's why we keep going back to the scriptures, because we want to hear what Jesus has to say about our lives, and about what he's called us to. So let me, before we get into understanding what that looks like today specifically, I want to give you a little bit of a qualifier and maybe a little bit of a warning about the passion that you, maybe you've heard from me already or you're going to hear a whole lot more of about why we're doing this. Obviously, Jesus told us to, to be about discipling, about reaching people, about helping people follow him. 
But you and I have to understand the big picture, and I've mentioned this before, and sometimes it's so easy for us to come to church, and our context of Christianity is what happens right here in an hour and a half every Sunday. And we don't see the bigger picture of what we're a part of or what God is doing around the world or what history is about. But if you and I understand that human history, the reason history unfolds is because God loves people so much that he's in the process of reconciling people back to him through Jesus. That is the summary of human history. And we are a part of that journey. We're a part of God's story in all of that. So if we understand the big picture of what God's up to, then we have to understand the importance and the urgency of what he's called us to do. So let me just give you three reasons why being a church that disciples people to disciple people, to take Jesus seriously when he said, gave us the Great Commission. Let me give you three reasons why this is so absolutely important. The first one is this, is that we live in a world that has yet to be reconciled to God and become followers of Jesus. We live in a context, even in our own city, but even far greater in the whole world, we live in a world right now where the majority of people in our world do not know who Jesus is. And the reason that's so significant is because Jesus, in his own words, tells us this amazing thing that you and I, even though you don't, we don't feel it, we don't think it, you and I have a direct impact. Our action has a direct impact on eternity. In fact, it has a direct impact on the timeline of when Jesus will return. Listen to Jesus in his own words, Matthew 24, verse 14. He says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Jesus was saying that the good news about me, Jesus, reconciling people back to God, will reach the whole world, every nation, which is not just every geographical country, every dialect, every subculture, every nation in the world, and then the end will come. Just let that settle in for a minute. You get up in the morning and most of us don't think globally. We don't think, wow, today I get to inch one, closer, one step closer to eternity by helping people know who Jesus is and follow him. Usually we don't think that way. But Jesus has given us this responsibility, this privilege of being a part of this big picture that says, make disciples. And it has a direct impact on eternity because the world doesn't know Jesus. There are people in the world that have never even understood there is a God and have never heard the name of Jesus. That's the task. That's the global call that God has for us, which leads to the second thing, which hits home a little bit more. The other reason this is so urgent and so important is that we live in a church culture where many people don't truly know what it means to follow Jesus. And this is not just New Hope. This is not an indictment on New Hope. This is probably true of the church in general, particularly in our culture in the United States, is that there's many people who define faith or Christianity in the following terms. It's church attendance. It's trying to be a good moral person. It's maybe giving a little bit of money when you feel guilty enough. It's maybe serving a little bit because you feel obligated to. And you try to be the best husband or wife that you can. And that sums it up and says, okay, then I just live that life. I live out my 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And Jesus comes back and it's a great celebration. That's our definition. See, the tragedy is if that's our definition of what it means to follow Jesus, we have missed it. Because what I just described was religion. And many of us buy into that. Jesus didn't come to found or find a religion, to create a religion. He didn't come to establish Christianity. He came to reunite and reconnect people with God. 
So listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. So this is what I know. I go back to Scripture. If you want to get mad at me, I'm going to point you to Jesus. Listen to what he said in these verses. Jesus' own words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not serve in children's ministry? Were we not ushers? Did we not work in the parking lot? Did we not do good deeds? Did we not tithe? That's my paraphrase, okay? And in your name, drive out demons and then perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Ouch. Why is it so urgent? Because by what Jesus says in this room right now, there may be churchgoers, but not true followers of Jesus. You may not ask saying you are, but you may be sitting next to somebody right now who's convinced that they know Jesus, but someday when he comes back, they'll hear these words. That's why it's so important for us to ask the question, what is a disciple? And how do we follow Jesus? And why we're going to take 18 months to do this? Because nothing else is as important as this. Because eternity is at stake, which leads to the final thing of why so urgent, why so important. And that is because we live in a season of God's patience. We live in a season of time where God loves people so deeply, he's waiting. Peter describes this in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. Peter says this, he says, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's beyond time. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is Peter saying? He's saying the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God loves people. Because God is giving the church, us, the body of Christ, time to be busy and focused on reaching people for him. He's waiting. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, hey, when it all gets around the world and everybody gets a chance, then I'm coming back. But right now I'm patient because I love people and I'm waiting to come back because I'm wanting my church to rise up and be serious about making disciples so that I can return someday and reunite everybody with God. Isn't that amazing? I get a little excited. I know you guys are looking like, man, he had too much coffee this morning. I wish I could blame it on coffee. It's not. It's this excitement of what God has called us to. It's the reason that we're here. So understanding that sense of urgency about what God's called us to, what is a disciple? Now, this is a very simple explanation of what discipleship and what a disciple is. And I want you to understand, before I walk through these things, hear me, because some of you will walk away today and you'll feel like guilty and overwhelmed and I can't match up and I might as well just forget about it. And I feel like I feel judged and Pastor, Pastor John's mad at me and none of those things are true. Because what we're about to walk through, there's a difference in the understanding. What we're about to walk through is not justification for being a believer or following Jesus. In other words, these are not the things you have to do to earn yourself into God's kingdom or God's family. What we're going to talk about are things that are evidence of a disciple. In other words, if I really am a disciple, then I know these things are true of my life. Not because I manufacture them, but because they become over time a part of who I am. That's the process of discipleship. So understand that. This is evidence, not justification. Understand that. Because we are all saved by God's grace through Jesus' death on the cross. That's the beauty of it. But the evidence of that is what this looks like in our lives. The first thing is this. Again, there'll be a number of passages. Is that a disciple follows the words of Jesus. 
it's that word that we hate to say, obedience. And in Christianity and in the church, obedience is a bad word because it always means that I'm not doing it. You know what I mean? Like when your kids hear about obedience, it means that they're not obeying, so you tell them to obey. But obedience is the key element that demonstrates you and I truly believe that Jesus is the Lord of our life. Listen, and this is a, it's a typo. It's actually Matthew 28, uh, verse 20. Uh, it, it said, Jesus said this, we read it earlier, and teaching them to what? Obey everything I commanded. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. And Jesus also in John 14, verses 23 and 24. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. And then Jesus, again, he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So why do you say that you're, you, I'm the leader of your life, but when I ask you to do something, you find something else to do instead? So it's obedience. Jesus is not just the one that died on the cross and saved our lives. He's the one who is the Lord and the master and the king over all. That's why he said, all authority has been given to me. So when I say this, you need to listen is what he's saying. So Jesus is about obedience. That is such a struggle for us. But obedience comes over a lifelong commitment to follow Jesus, and he begins to shape and change and form you and I into people who become more and more obedient. Don't you wish that the moment you said yes to Jesus, all your problems went away, you obeyed everything Jesus said and never sinned again? Wouldn't that be great? It doesn't work that way. Sorry to burst your bubble. It's the process of following Jesus. That's why it's discipleship is a process. But there's evidence of that. This transformation happens over time. It happened in Peter. We all like Peter because we either rail on Peter for his failures or we feel good about ourselves because we know at least one of the original apostles failed too. But you remember Peter was so zealous. Peter was so enthusiastic. He was always the first one to jump in, but he was also the one who failed miserably. When Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, never, I would never do that. And then as you know, the story unfolds. Jesus goes on trial and Peter three times denies Jesus. And even to one point, to the point where he actually swears, he cusses. He's so mad to say, no, I never knew him. And then the rooster crows and Peter knows. I betrayed Jesus. So the good thing is that's not the end of Peter's story. Peter, who struggled with obedience, when Jesus challenged him to obey, he would want to, but he never quite did. And then over time, he struggled that. Then you fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter's up on a rooftop praying, and Jesus gives Peter a vision that rocked his world. Up until that point, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, had been spreading amongst the Jews because Jews didn't associate with non-Jews. So Jesus breaks into Peter's world through a vision and literally he lowers a blanket full of food that was off limits to the Jews and he tells Peter, a good Jew, eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I I can't do that. I'm not supposed to do that. And what Jesus says to him, he says, no, what I have made clean is clean. Eat. And what he was saying to Peter is, it's time for you to go beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, which was really hard for a Jew to listen. So Jesus challenges Peter to obey him. And what does Peter do? Peter goes to a Gentile's house and leads an entire family to know Jesus. That's not just significant for Peter. You and I need to understand if Peter doesn't obey in Acts chapter 10, you and I are not sitting in this church today. Because the majority of us in this room, there are some that are, but the majority of us in this room are non-Jews. 
And because Peter obeyed God and obeyed Jesus, you and I are here today because somewhere down the line in history, a non-Jew heard about the gospel and responded to Jesus. And that's why we're here today. Obedience is a huge deal. It's all about obeying Jesus. And that means there's going to be moments in your life where you have to make decisions that challenge you and also make you feel like I'm going against the flow here and this doesn't make sense, but I know it's what God's called me to do. I've mentioned before, my dad is one of the primary disciples and mentors in my life. And the reason why is he's been, a, he's been a missionary and a Bible college professor and a pastor. And I've heard him speak tons of times. But what has always impressed me about my dad is that who he is in public is who he is privately. He lives out his faith, and it challenges me to become more like Jesus. One of those areas early on that I watched this unfold was I was like five or six years old. And in our family, I had me and three older sisters, and we had a family skateboard. And the reason I call it a family skateboard is because we only had one with four kids, and our name was literally written across the top of it, huge letters, Amstutz. You couldn't mistake it was our skateboard. And so we would fight over and occasionally share the skateboard and we would play. And one day, I can't remember who it was. I still to this day will blame my sisters for it. But somebody left the skateboard out in the front yard. And so a friend of ours, a neighbor, comes to our door and he knocks and he says, Hey, he said, the kid up the street just came by your house and he stole your skateboard. I was furious. At one point I thought, he's pretty stupid stealing a skateboard that says Amstutz on it. But So I was, I was like, well, we're going to go get it. So I went and told my dad. I said, this guy, he's a kid. Our neighbor saw him. He stole it. He took it home. So we got to go get it. My dad says, okay, let's walk up the street and let's see what's going on. I'm like, okay. So on the way, I'm telling my dad, okay, this is what you're going to say. I'm telling me, great wisdom of five or six, because we're going to get this guy. We're going to catch him. I know he has it. And my dad's just calmly listening to me. And so we get to the front door, and I had kind of scripted for him what he's supposed to say. And so he knocks on the door, and they open the door. Parents were at home, so the brother answers the door, and then this kid comes to the door. We have him come to the door. So I'm like, I'm looking at my dad. I'm waiting. He's going to let him have it. It's going to be great. We're going to get the skateboard back. He's going to be embarrassed. He's going to get in trouble. And then my dad says this. He said, hey, I heard that you really like to skateboard. I'm like, well, that's not what we talked about, but okay. And the kid looks up, and he goes, yeah. He goes, I do. And he goes, in fact, I heard that you don't have a skateboard, but you like to skateboard. And you could tell the kid was a little nervous. And he goes, uh, yeah, I don't have a skateboard. My dad pulls out his wallet and pulls out every bit of cash. And he opens the screen door and he hands it to the kid. And he says, I want you to go buy yourself a skateboard. I was so mad. <laughs> he shuts the screen door and we walk away. Oh man, my dad heard it all the way home. I said, what are you doing, Dad? That is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, not only does he have our skateboard that says Amstutz on it, now he has all your money. And I remember my dad just looking at me saying, it's okay. We're going to trust God that he's going to take care of the situation. I said, what do you mean, trust God? Dad, he has our skateboard. We look like idiots. He said, no, just, just trust the Lord. The next morning, 7 o'clock, doorbell rings on our front porch. This kid's dad, this kid in one hand is cash, and the other hand is a skateboard. Standing on the front porch. The dad, we go to the door and the dad starts to apologize. And then he looks at his son and his son starts to apologize. And he hands back the skateboard and he hands back the cash. I will never forget that. Because what my dad was living out is one of the hardest 
verses, the hardest passage of Scripture for us to live out. And this is what Jesus said, and we're going to talk about this. This is part of the teachings in Matthew. In his own words, Matthew 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, we want to slap them back, don't we? What does Jesus say? Turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take, you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If they want to steal your skateboard, give them money too. I'll never forget that. Why? Because my dad was demonstrating to me what it meant to be a disciple, which was Jesus said to turn the other cheek. Jesus said, don't resist an evil person. Jesus says, when they try to take from you, give. And he lived that out. Wouldn't it be great for that to be second nature? That over time, that you don't even question that's what you do? Because you're a disciple. Because you follow Jesus. And therefore, you do this next thing. The next thing that's true about a disciple is that a disciple reflects the character of Jesus. Not only is that obedience to what he said in even difficult situations, but we begin to reflect the primary character of Jesus is love. God's love is expressed through Jesus. That's what John 3.16 reminds us of. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, he gave Jesus so that whoever believes and trusts and surrenders to follow him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It was God's love that was the motivating factor to send Jesus. Listen to John chapter 13, verse 33, or 34 and 35, in the words of Jesus. Not only do we love others outside, but we love each other inside. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you what? You love one another. How do we make disciples? We love each other. We display the character of Jesus. We love people who say mean things about us. We love people who are different than us. We love people that we can't get, can't get along with. See, that's the beauty of the church, is all these people with issues and stuff and junk and different backgrounds and different cultures come together and find a way to love each other through Jesus. And the world sits back and says, what in the world are you guys doing? That's what happens. But when the church doesn't do that, when we fight amongst each other and we separate from each other and we have competitiveness in the body of Christ about one church and this church, then the world looks at us and says, you're just like us. You put a spiritual kind of spin on it, but you're just like us. That's why Jesus says, display love. And then in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, I told you it'd be a fire hose of scripture. Love is the evidence of knowing God. John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The evidence of knowing God, the evidence of following Jesus, is I find the ability beyond my ability to love somebody else. And love is expressed in a variety of ways. One of the ways is that we're willing to sacrifice for other people. We're willing to give up things for other people. Why? Because our motivation is love. We love people. There's another great story in the book of Acts about a woman named Tabitha. Her Greek name is Dorcas, and that's why you don't hear about her very much, because nobody wants to talk about Dorcas. No one wants to be named Dorcas. And she only gets a couple of verses in all of the Bible. But those couple of verses communicate volumes about who she is. She dies and Peter goes and prays for her and she's raised from the dead. That is incredible. It's miraculous. But it's what Peter finds before he prays for her that is amazing. See, what this woman had done in her life is that she had been gifted with the ability to make clothing. 
And she knew that that ability wasn't for her to just clothe her own family or to clothe herself. But she had great, deep love and compassion for people who were broken. So she began to use that gift in making clothing to make clothing for widows and orphans. For caring for people who couldn't care for themselves. And the most amazing thing happens when Peter shows up on the scene and he walks in. He walks into, really, if you read it, it's almost as though he's walked into a fashion show of all these widows who have come to mourn the loss of Tabitha. And they're all wearing and displaying all the clothing that she had made for them. And Peter walks into this. And they're weeping and they're sorrow, but they're demonstrating, look at how much she loved us, that when she was alive, she did this for us. She used this gift and she put together whatever she had to make clothing so that we would have clothes. That sacrifice, that love, that deep compassion for people that drives you to give away things that maybe you don't even provide for yourself, but you care deeply for people. But love goes to another deeper level even than that is finding the capacity to love somebody who hates you. See, Jesus had that capacity. That was his character. That's why when he was on the cross and they were killing him, he looks to the Father and says, Father, forgive them. I don't even understand what they're doing. That's love. Deep care for people. So I'm going to brag on my wife for just a moment. I've watched the character of Jesus reflected in her life. A few years after we got married, she got a job at Azusa Pacific University. She was working in the business office. It was a great opportunity. We were excited about it. But the first week that she went to work, for some reason, she came home each night and she would tell me, there was one gal in particular that worked in the office that chose to make Kim the focus of her wrath, anger, frustration in life. I don't know what the reason was. But she decided to make Kim's life horrible. So when Kim would show up to work, she would treat her poorly. She would lie about her. She would sabotage her work. She would do everything she could to try to make Kim look bad, maybe to even get her fired. And this went on for quite some time. And I love my wife, and she's a pretty cool person. I I find it hard for anyone to not like her. So I'm thinking, this lady is an idiot. That's what I'm thinking. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm trying to defend her. And so we're talking about this, and she said, you know, I know I need to pray for her. I said, that's probably a good thing. You probably should pray for me too. And so she started to pray for her. And in the process of praying for her, The Lord spoke to her. There's a passage in Romans, and we'll read another passage in a moment, about loving your enemies and returning good for evil. And God showed her that passage, and she said, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to love her. I'm supposed to reach out to her. I'm supposed to care for her. Even when she's mean, even when she does things, I'm not supposed to defend myself. and I'm supposed to just love her. And so Kim set out to do that. And over a period of weeks and months, she just did that as much as she could. She would look out for her. She would reach out for her. She would take her out to lunch. She would do whatever she could to love this girl. And over time, she began to melt. She began to change. And after a few months, this girl, who was Kim's primary enemy actually became one of her good friends that she worked with at Azusa Pacific. Why did that happen? Because I watched my wife display the character of Jesus and choose to love instead of hate, to choose to do good instead of to do evil. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, he says, you have heard, it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We love to stop the verse right there. But then Jesus goes on in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute persecute you. Can you imagine if we lived our lives that way? That we prayed deeply for people who were after us, who hated us, who tried to sabotage our lives and watch God transform them because they see the character of Jesus in us. Which leads to the third and final thing about what a disciple is. 
A disciple embraces the way of Jesus. What's the way of Jesus? Sacrifice. Now, I know this one, if you're you're looking to grow a big church and attract a lot of people, I should stay away from this one. And since we're not interested in doing that, we're interested in discipleship, we're going to go there. Jesus is about sacrifice. He stepped out of heaven, became human, and in in Philippians, Paul tells us in chapter 2, became obedient to the point of death on a cross for you and I. That's sacrifice. He gave it all up for you and I. And to follow him, to be one of his disciples, means we live as Jesus lived. That's what John says in 1 John. To be as Jesus was, to live as he lived. So listen to what Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says. Jesus says this in his own words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Which means you and I have to be willing to die to live. We need to be willing to give up everything. And there's that that point of, okay... If Jesus someday, this is kind of the, the context we worked in. Someday, if I have to give up my life for my faith, I'll do it. But that's someday, right? Don't we all think that? But he won't really ask me to do that, right? What if you and I aren't ready for that? What if, it really, what if Jesus really is saying, is meaning what he said here? That every day we have to be willing to die to ourselves. We have to be willing to deny ourselves. We have to be willing to sacrifice. Oh man, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus. But what could be more fulfilling than dying to ourselves? Dying to our sin, our selfishness, our flesh, our own agenda, all those kinds of things. What, what could be better than that? And actually becoming what God purposed us to be, apart from sin and failure and, and this, this human shell that we live in every day. Jesus calls us to be self-sacrificing. You know what sometimes is harder than dying, being willing to die, is being willing to live for Jesus? Because that means, you know, death is one sacrifice for all and we're done. Whew, all right, I get to go into eternity. That's not to downplay a martyr. But what could be a lot harder is every single day having to die to myself. Having to give of myself. Having to let go of things. And not hang on so tightly. But being willing to release it. That's what the early church, Acts chapter 2, if you read, go read Acts chapter 2 because it tells you. If you if we go past verse 42, you get to verse 45. This crazy thing happens. People are so bought into living self-sacrificing lives, they actually go out and start selling their property, selling their possessions, and giving to people who had need. So much so that the first church, when it was established, the people who belonged to that community of believers, nobody had a need financially. Because when they did... People went out and sold what they had. And then they brought the money and they put it at the apostles' feet and said, okay, distribute it, make sure everybody has what they need. Self-sacrificing lives. Being willing to give of yourself. That, that was the normal rhythm for them. Let me, let me challenge you this way this morning. So I'm going to ask you or just for a couple moments just to close your eyes and I want you to, to answer for yourself four questions. I know this is tough. This is not easy. But this is what God's called us to. Ask these questions, and just even in your own life, I want you to think, the first thing is, what are you willing to endure to follow Jesus? In other words, if you were to really fully surrender yourself to Jesus, and I'm not saying that we haven't, but for those of us that haven't fully, if you just fully surrender everything, your job, your, your relationships, your family, your possessions, everything, it's all on the table, what would you have to endure for that? What kind of ridicule would you have to endure? What, what kind of things would people say about you? What would you have to go through in order to live a life like that? Would you be willing to go through those things? Second thing, what are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? 
What are you willing to lay out on the table to say, okay, I, I give you this? In fact, I just had an amazing conversation with someone in between services who was just offered the job of a lifetime. It's the job that is the pinnacle of their career. And when they were offered it, they had to say no because they knew Jesus said, you're not supposed to do that. And they laid it down knowing that Jesus has something greater in the next season of life for them. What is it that you need to get rid of this? The very thing that you maybe think is giving you or supposed to give you life is the very thing that's killing you because Jesus says you need to surrender it. You need to sacrifice it. Third question is, where are you willing to live to follow Jesus? This amazing thing happens when you and I follow Jesus is sometimes he changes their zip code. I just want you to think for a moment, are you willing to leave the comfort of what's familiar? Are you willing to enter into a place that may be unfamiliar to you? Are you willing to give up the comfort of your house, the comfort of Simi Valley or Moore Park or wherever you live or Thousand Oaks or Newberry Park? Are you willing to give up that comfort if God calls you to do that because you're choosing to follow Jesus? And the final question is, what needs to die in your life so that you can truly live? What needs to die today? You can open your eyes. There's an amazing verse. I'm not gonna, it's not going to be on the screens, but, but Paul says this amazing thing in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with him. That's what water baptism symbolizes. It's going down into a grave and being raised to new life. So the person I used to be, the way I used to think, the things I used to value, that's all gone. That's in the past. My agenda, my dream for my life is now in the past. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer do I live. But he goes on to say, who does live through him is Jesus. It's not Paul's life anymore. It's God's life through him. And if anybody I would like to be like, I'd like to be like Paul. Because Paul came from someone who hated Jesus to someone who loved him and turned the world upside down for him. Why? Because Paul realized it's not about my agenda. What was Paul's agenda? To persecute Christians, to stop the church's advance. But what did Jesus do? He transformed Paul so that Paul joined the other team. I love that story. I would love that for my life, that somehow I am no longer living in this flesh. It is God living through me. Some of you think, ah, are you kidding? I have great hopes and dreams. and It's about what I want to do. God's will for my life usually means my will for my life. I want God to endorse it. That's usually what it means. But where do I get to the point where I say, God, could it be possible that maybe your agenda for my life is just, just a little bit better than my own? That maybe the fulfillment you want to bring in my life goes far beyond what I could even dream of myself? I think it's possible. That's why Jesus says you have to be willing to die to live. So let me close with this in this, the next few moments that we have. What does this mean for us as a church overall? So what I want to do is the next couple moments, and then I'll pray, and then we'll have a chance to head over to the tables to get connected in small groups, is, again, some of this, what I'm going to cover in the next few moments, is maybe review for you if you've been a part of the church for the last eight months. But for some of you, it might be a little bit new. But I want you to understand, so if we're going to seriously embrace the Great Commission, if we're going to be a church that truly takes discipleship seriously, both in the context of Simi Valley and around the world, then everything that we do as a church has to align itself behind that goal, which is not the goal of New Hope. It's the goal of the church of Jesus around the world for thousands of years. We want to align ourselves with that. 
So let me walk through what that means in the short run for us and then over, over the course of time for our church. The first thing is, John mentioned it earlier, and we've been talking about it, it's the process called right size, which is that we are in the process of moving buildings. And the reason that we are in the process of doing that is because this building controls us. Now, you may just be someone who comes here on a Sunday morning and you like the fact that it's air-conditioned and it looks kind of nice up front, but you don't realize that $30,000 a month goes into this place just to keep it running. $30,000. We want to be able to cut that in half. And the reason why is because $15,000 a month can go to God's mission, can go outside of ourselves, can fund discipleship with, even within our church. We don't want to be strapped by a building. And the right size means finding a facility that works for us, not us working for the facility, which means we're going to go from 32,000 square feet probably to closer to fifteen to 17,000 square feet. Some of you are thinking, man, I know. I mentioned last week, I'm not going to be able to have an open seat next to me. Isn't that great? You'll get to know your neighbor. It'll be wonderful. We've, we're looking at a building over by Costco right now. We're in kind of the early process of talking with the city, working out a proposal for the, the owner, and we're seeing, we're having to see all the hoops we have to jump through because churches have wonderful requirements on them. There are a lot of them. But we're walking through that process. So part of the process is giving. It's giving to right size. And that means some sacrificial giving. So about three months ago when we started the process, you had given faithfully to a thing called the Forward Campaign over the last year, about $30,000. Since that, in the last three months, we brought in about $26,000. A chunk of that was one gift by someone who was very generous. But I want you to know that this project over the next probably nine months is probably going to cost between one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000. You think, wow, where are all the money going? Permits and construction costs. It, it, there's a lot of money just transferring. But if we can cut down our costs so that we're eliminating thousands of dollars a month that goes into rent, we're going to be ahead within a year, maybe 18 months, by moving to a right-sized facility. So I'm asking you, over and above your tithe, tithe is what you come in, 10% I give to God, but an offering is I'm going to give a check for 100 or 200 or $500 a month to right-size so that we'd be in a place where we can, we're going to have to spend money to save money. That's the process we're walking through. Second thing is just to understand the process of simplification that we've been going through as a church, which means there's things that maybe historically have gone on, rhythms and, and events and things like that, that, that some of them have been spinning plates that either have been taken intentionally and set down to further in the future go back and revisit, or we've let some things lose their momentum and hit the ground. And the reason that's so important is because when, when I came here eight months ago, and in the history of this church, there's been some wonderful things that God used. But what happened over time is that all those things that got added in over the year, years, that the church just felt like, we got to keep them all going. Because if we don't keep them going, then we're not going to attract people to our building, and we're not going to have good programs, and people aren't going to come to church, so we've got to keep this place going. And so when I got here, I watched a lot of people exhausting them and killing themselves to do church. But nobody's stepping back, back and asking the question, why are we doing this? And just because you've always, we've always done something, that's not good enough. We always have to ask God, what is he calling us to do? So earlier this summer, we did not have a VBS. Is that because VBS is bad? No, because VBS fell on a handful of people who were fried and burned out, and we need to be leading ministries from a place of strength, not barely hanging on. But VBS is a great opportunity not to facilitate just discipleship for kids in the church, but to reach out to our community. So we'll talk about what VBS looks like in the future. Also, another thing is Awana. We're not doing Awana this fall. 
Now, I know for some of you who didn't know and some of you found out, you're like, wait a second, you have to have a WANA. Is WANA a great program? It's an amazing program that helps kids learn scripture. I know a lot of kids have been impacted that, by that. But because we're in the middle of transition, and we may not even be here in the next eight, seven, or eight months, the transition even with Awana and facility, as well as, again, Awana coming down to a handful of people trying to make it happen, as well as not being able to step back and say, does Awana fit for the future of what God's calling us to do as we get aggressive to a disciple young people? It may fit, but we have to be able to ask the question, Harvest party. I'm thinking, man, Pastor John, you're really a bummer. You just canceled everything. No, listen. Not everything's shutting down, but things that remain, that need to remain, that are core things are going to remain. But the Harvest Festival, which has been, again, a rhythm of the church. Again, when I got here, I had no plans to not have a Harvest Festival until I sat down with leaders and realized this is killing people every year. And when they were all honest, all of them said the same thing. We're not reaching anybody. All we're doing is facilitating an event for about 1,500 kids from the churches of Simi Valley. That's wonderful. But that's not discipleship. That's not reaching people. When there's thousands of kids in our city who need Jesus, and if we're not reaching them with a harvest festival, then we better not do it anymore. I know, I got one amen out of that. I know the rest of you are thinking, man, I'm going to shoot arrows at him in a second. <laughs> but listen to the shift. This is what I want you to understand. If we're serious about reaching our community and about discipleship, then you and I have to understand this. Halloween, although it's evil and horrible and we run from it as Christians, is God's opportunity to reach our culture. Listen to this. Every year, without fail, the world comes to your door. Think about it. And what do we do as Christians? No offense, but we all huddle at the church and create a safe alternative to Halloween. Why are we doing that? The world is coming to our door. And what do we do if we don't go to the church? We shut all the lights down in the front of the house and watch TV with our kids in the back and we pray that no evil person comes. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but listen. Don't be afraid of the world. It's coming to our door. And that's why we're not having a harvest party or festival. We're having garage parties. And what we're doing is we're going to give you some resource that will help you to open up your garage and when trick-or-treaters come to your door, they don't come to a dark-lit porch that they knock on and nobody comes. They come to an open garage with lights and music and food and a welcoming environment that their parents can come into. And it's just to build relationship. It's not to go through the four spiritual laws or hand out tracts. It's just to get to know your neighbors. <laughs> Seriously, that's all it takes. Give God the chance to have an avenue of relationship with your neighbor that he might use someday to bring him to Jesus. And the world comes to our door. I love Halloween. I used to hate it. I love it because people are coming to my door and I'm going to get to know my neighbors like never before. We did this for years in Newburgh, and by the time we moved out of our neighborhood, we knew everybody within a block and a half. We knew every single household. We knew Christians and non-Christians. We knew them all. Why? Because they came to our house at least every Halloween and then other connections after that. So it's a shift in our mindset. He's a little passionate, I know. A couple other things before we conclude. So small groups, small groups today. Understand the trend and the, the direction we're heading with small groups. Small groups, if you look biblically and you read through the book of Acts, the smaller context was the primary avenue for discipleship in the New Testament. This, what we call church, this is not something that you see historically in the church throughout church history being the avenue of discipleship. But we think that it is. And so I tell you that because the shift that's coming is that we are moving from being a church with small groups as a small kind of department or compartment over here to being a church of small groups. The ultimate goal down the road is that every single person who calls New Hope their church home is in a small group. 
and it's starting slowly. We're meeting with small group leaders right now. John Looney and I have been meeting with small group leaders every month. We've been walking through things together to talk about this being the primary avenue of discipleship. And that means discipleship, by the way, is not just knowing and getting information and being a better person. It's about serving the mission of God, which means small groups is a perfect avenue to serve the mission of God outside our church. It's 5 to 10 to 15 people serving an avenue of, in our community and reaching people outside of the normal Sunday morning. We talked about it. The majority of people are not going to walk in on, into a church on Sunday morning. They're not. The culture is beyond that now. That's why, we have, that's why Jesus knows what he's saying when he says, go. He didn't say wait for them to come. He said, go. So you'll hear more about that. But this, the, the, so you know, the small groups are slowly morphing into that. It's a transition. So I want to encourage you. We would love the, the small groups to be overwhelmed with too many people. So we have to start more small groups so that we can reach more people effectively. And then two other things. There's been a book that a number of leaders have, re- have read, small group leaders have read it, council, elder staff. It's called Radical Together by David Platt. It's a great book that challenges all of us to come back to the biblical mandate of making disciples and what that means for us. So if you want to be a part of the bigger dialogue and understand maybe some of the things that maybe some people are saying, I want you to get the book. In fact, it's on sale at the Resource Center for five bucks. They went like crazy in the first service. If we sell out of them, we'll get more for next week. It's way more, way more than five bucks. But it'll challenge you when you read through it. But it's really good for us to understand that. And then leads to the final thing before I pray and we, we conclude. So I know there's a lot of change. And understand, when, when, when Kim and I came here eight months ago, nine months ago, I didn't have an agenda for change. Honestly, I said, God, what are you doing? What are you doing at New Hope? What are you calling us to do? What needs to change? And change has not happened because we have orchestrated it. Change has happened to us. And we've simply responded according to what God is doing. And so God has brought us to this place where we, we've seen a lot of change. And some people, if you maybe haven't been a part of the dialogues, you're spinning a little bit. You're thinking, wait a second, all the things that I used to know seem to not be there anymore, and I don't know why, and I'm not understanding, and nobody seems to answer any questions, so we're going to have some gatherings called Compass Gatherings. So on the 23rd, 24th, 25th of this month, that's a Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, I'm going to ask you if New Hope is your church home that you find in your schedule to be at one of those gatherings. They'll be identical. I'll talk about the bigger picture of what God's doing, and we're calling it Compass because God gives us a direction. He doesn't give us a roadmap. He gives us the direction, so we say, okay, I'll go. You notice when Matthew 28, Jesus said go. He didn't say, and this is how you're going to do it. He just said go. So as we go, we're kind of seeing how God is shaping that. And in that meeting, there'll be opportunities for question and answer. If you have questions about what's going on, we'll answer those questions as we process through how God is leading us. I'm excited. I am so excited to be here and be a part of what God's doing. I hope I haven't just overwhelmed you with all this information. But God has called us to be a church that makes disciples, that makes, has, makes people that makes disciples, so that ultimately we get to stand. This is the end, this is the, the finish line. This is my prayer for you, this is my prayer for my life. Someday I will stand before the throne of Jesus. I will be worshiping with people from every tongue, tribe, nation, from around the world, for all human history, and I will look across the throne room and I will see faces of people that I know that I at least had this much impact in their life of the process of discipleship and helping them to find and follow Jesus. The worst thing for me in eternity would be stand in front of the throne and not know a soul because I never, ever invested my life in somebody else. Although I'd be in heaven, I'd make it, there would be huge regret because all I did was get myself there. Big deal. God has called us to something bigger. So get your seatbelts on because here we go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us 
to this amazing journey. And Lord, we know that it is way beyond us. The Great Commission is far greater than us, but it's not greater than the power of your Holy Spirit in us. And that's why we're so grateful that when you call us to something beyond us, you empower us by your Spirit. So Lord, empower us. Empower our lives. Challenge us to grow. Challenge us to live beyond ourselves, not to justify ourselves, but Lord, to see you work out the evidence of your presence in our lives. So as we take this journey over the next 18 months, change us, shape us, form us, help us to become disciples that follow you, that help other people become disciples that follow you. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? You can head over to the table. Small group leaders are over there. They can help you get connected into their groups. God bless you. Have a great week.